Hello, I'm here to tell you about Probably True, a slightly filthy podcast talking about queer life and even queerer sex, with plenty of knob jokes thrown in, just for fun. It's called Probably True, but it's all real. My mum listens and she doesn't need to know about the time I ended up covered. Actually, never mind. If you want to find out what happened, you'll have to download it. Just search for Probably True wherever you get your podcasts and you can find out all the silly, sexy, funny, filthy details. Welcome to the Astroholic Explains, a podcast where we try to explain the universe's greatest mysteries with fictional stories, Q&As, and interviews. Join Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti, the self-styled astroholic, and Chris, my partner in life and in science. Featuring experts and brilliant voice actors, join us in a light-hearted journey of discovery. Today, we're joined by another special guest. Yes, we have guests now. Today's special guest is Dave. Dave, please introduce yourself. Uh, so my name's Dave Williams. I'm a solar physicist uh, working at the European Space Agency's Astronomy Centre in Spain. And I'm an instrument scientist on this year's newly launched Solar Orbiter mission. We're very excited about the Solar Orbiter. Very. Now, I don't know much about the Solar Orbiter, but from what I gather, it is in line with one of the solar system's big mysteries why the atmosphere around the sun is a massively different temperature to the temperature of the surface of the sun. You're nodding, this is not a visual production. <laughs> I'm just admiring and I'm glad that they can share in with me on the general... I'm gonna ask a lot of... I'm gonna ask a question and there's gonna be a lot of caveats while I explain <laughs> that I'm not a scientist. And I yeah. ab- really appreciate that of you, but you don't do that with me. With me, you're just like, I'm saying things, uh, I don't care <laughs> if so. Somebody else is like, oh, there is, uh, there is somebody here and I want them to think I know what I'm talking about. Uh, but yes, that is a good question. Yeah, I, loved it. I didn't want to interrupt you because you were getting it all right, <laughs> so this is great. Phew. Okay, so... The Sun and Mysteries and the Solar Orbiter. Please tell us a little bit more. Right, so uh, Solar Orbiter is a mission that we've launched to try and understand the whole system that the Sun creates. So for, like at school, very, very often we learn about the star, which is our Sun, and the planets that go around it. But we very often don't think about the gas that fills all that space in between them. And it's a really, really active place. So the Sun is constantly throwing off what we call a solar wind, uh, which a lot of stars do. I mean, most stars have some sort of solar wind or solar wind coming off them. Um, and we know that eventually by the time that solar wind gets only as far as the Earth, which is one of the inner planets, it's very churned up and it contains a lot of very high-speed particles, dangerous radiation, magnetic fields that are very tangled and do strange things when they interact with our planet's magnetosphere. Um, so like the aurora? Exactly like the aurora. That's a yes. really good example. So we... it's a very happy face here (laughs) I think it's also important to mention that uh, um, the dangers to our technology when uh... Uh, yeah this is a this is a huge thing which is I I guess not not appreciated even by everybody in the scientific community is that in throwing off this uh, this sort of river if you like of magnetically containing charged plasma um, at the Earth, it disturbs our magnetic field. And uh, if you've done A-level physics, for example, or, or early university physics, you'll know that when you have a magnetic field that changes, it induces a current. 
And if you've got a magnetic field that changes on a planetary scale, it can induce currents on a planetary scale as well. Ooh, it can make quite massive differences then in that case. Yeah, so it can, when it's sort of relatively benign, you can notice the difference, but there are little blips all the time which can be quite bad. And we think very often of like big events. Um, there was one that happened in the 1990s in Quebec. There's one that we just missed in 2012 because it was pointed away from the Earth. Hmm. But if those, if those things are going to hit, oh, and the Carrington event, of course, which is yeah. where we discovered solar flares back in the 1850s, then when those things hit the Earth, they can actually do quite a lot of damage to, to long conducting things like telegraph lines or power lines or... The Carrington event, uh, which happens, if I remember correctly, in 1859, pretty much the telegraph lines across the United States, uh, uh, the receiver... T- t- caught fire right, yeah, because yeah. there was so much electricity and wow. aurora were seen potentially as uh, like very sudden latitude that yeah, yeah. was incredible well it would completely destroy i think uh, they made uh, lloyd's the insurance company made an estimate uh, that it would cost uh, the u.s economy one trillion dollars if the same event would happen today wow because that's... we're definitely not prepared yep yeah. <laughs> we're somewhat distracted with other things you know always yes uh Everything is happening, yeah. uh, but yes, there are a lot of things that can kill us. So I always, uh, something that uh, people ask me a lot is about black holes and how dangerous they are. And I'm just like, you know that everything else in space is trying to kill us. Like, <laughs> so like if there was, yeah, if there was like a solar flare big enough that it actually disrupted so much electrical equipment and stuff on Earth that things were blowing up, that would, that could actually happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, there's, and it would take a very long time to recover from it as well because oh, there isn't a factory knocking out a generator a day. Mm. These things are enormous machines and they take months to build as well. So there'd be a, a real dip in recovery time Wow. that we'd have to wait to get things like generators for hospitals back up. And, and oh, so, no. so there's, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite a big deal if it happens. But there's, a, there's a, sort of another kind of silent, I don't say killer exactly, but a silent damager that's going on all the time, which is the small blips, which are quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. And we do, but we don't necessarily notice because they're so short. They're damaging transformers and power lines and that kind of stuff all the time. And the, the, the economic damage caused by just what's going on all the time is equivalent to the economic damage that would be produced by these sort of mega events as well. And we don't hear about it because it's not a single event. And that's, oh. not, how, that's not how we sort of perceive history, right? If something's going on all the time, there's no single event for us to kind of go, oh, yeah, do you remember like that Tuesday? It was really, really bad. But what's actually happening is that the solar wind interacting with our planet is inducing overcurrent in electrical systems worldwide. I mean, electrical systems get old. The resistance changes. There's constant damage happening all the time, like a war of attrition. Wow. That is fascinating, and I had no idea. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. So that's that's one of the things that, we, that has inspired us to launch a mission to dive deeper towards the sun and find out how does the solar wind behave when we get close to the sun, and where is it really coming from? Because we, we're pretty sure that there are uh, open magnetic field regions, which is to say you have like a north or a south pole uh, element, let's say, on the sun. And the magnetic field line comes doesn't really connect to anything else on the sun. And we have closed systems as well. This is easier to illustrate with pictures, of course. <laughs> but there, in these open places, we, the solar wind can really rush out quite fast. And, and in fact, as a consequence of the f- fact that the atmosphere of the sun, as you go further out, is so hot, it just expands. And actually, the Earth is embedded within still the atmosphere of the Sun, which just extends out to beyond the orbit of Pluto. Wow. So the Sun, the sun is the whole system, okay. and we're just kind of like swimming in its yeah, stream, I guess. That is very cool. So my question for you is, what is the most exciting uh, thing about the solar orbiter that you're looking forward to? Oh, what kind wow. of data? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really nice one. So, so we've, 
we've I used to work on on, on other solar missions, so on the Japanese Hinode mission, mm-hmm. and I've, I've worked with the the Isa Soho um, mission as well, Isa NASA Soho mission. And one of the challenges you always have is trying to make sure that everybody's focusing. If you want to connect up the different bits of information that we need, so like connecting, like making a picture of the whole animal. You know, one instrument sees its foot, another one sees its head, the other one looks at the colour of its hair. It's difficult to get all these instruments looking in the right place at the right times. And what we're going to do with Solar Orbiter, which is really, really cool, is we're going to measure the solar wind as it flows past the spacecraft. We're going to measure the electrons, the protons, the heavy ions, the magnetic field, the radio waves that are induced by turbulence and, and other processes. And we're going to measure all those things where we are and then look with our telescopes at where we think it's coming from and see if we can make that connection. Because if we can make that connection, that's great. And we understand something important about not just our star, but about all stellar planetary systems. Now you think of all the planets that we're looking for out there in the universe. We need to know how do they interact with their, with their parent stars. So on the one level, we just sort of, if we can make that connection, that's fantastic. If we cannot make that connection, then wow, we have some really deep thinking to do about what it is that causes the conditions in interplanetary space. I'm completely obsessed with the expanse at the moment. Mm, so you yes. know, I, we complete, completely, completely. <laughs> so, so I always think about you know how, how would the how would the conditions of space affect these kind of you know future adventures, which are not so hard to conceptualize, right? Mining in space and exploring new worlds and things like that. So uh, everything we're doing is really trying to understand how a star affects the planets around it and the space around those planets as well. And so if we can if we can understand our star, that's great, and we're we're on a solid footing for understanding the variations that different other stars. Uh, create and if we can't understand it wow that's then we really need to go back to some something fundamental and and try and investigate the physics of of whatever it is that's causing that that lack of knowledge you know so we're sort of seeing it holistically i guess i think it's a fantastic approach i think it's uh, not only important for the sake of science in itself but also for uh, for the exploration of the solar system absolutely yeah yeah it's it's exploring Exploring the solar system that we've looked at with with Voyager and and the various you know, express missions, but in in a different way by looking at the sort of the the most influential body at the centre of it all. In terms of how it affects the bodies in the solar system and for future missions throughout our solar system and touchwood beyond, tell me more about the kind of durability of the solar orbiter because we are literally throwing something man-made as close to the sun as we ever have how are we doing that what is this made out of how big is it so to give you sort of a sense of the scale of it it's about two and a half by two and a half by three meters as a kind of a cue board so it's sort of yeah which is you know, a decent sized living room and then if you add on the the solar panels on the sides that it will need to generate energy for itself um, that adds on an extra distance, which brings you up to 18 metres across. So it's quite, it's, it's always quite surprising when you see these things unfurled because you realise how much area of solar panel you need to power something like this. And it weighs about 1.8 tonnes when it's, when it's launched. That'll, that'll drop as it uses bits of fuel, but not, mm-hmm. not, not by half or anything. So that's, that gives you some sort of scale, size of the scale of it. And at the front, we have a heat shield, which is made by... Um, well, the, the covering is made by an Irish company called NBO, who came up with a really nice material which can protect the, the internal workings of the satellite from the fierce temperatures of the sun, which is, I guess, what you're talking about there. And and we know that on the front of it, we're expecting it to get up to about 500 degrees Celsius. It's much hotter than any oven that you know you, yeah. you would normally cook anything at. Um, but behind that, the, the, the electronics that we have on the side basically have to operate at 
room temperature or just below because like all the electronics that we that we build on earth we build it for room temperature yeah or maybe a little bit on either side so we have to control that that really really high heat input from the sun uh, in such a way that we can actually operate the electronics that drive the telescopes and the sensors and we it's kind of one of the frustrating things for me as a sort of a uh, more telescope based scientist is that you have to make the, the the entrance holes for those telescopes quite small because if you make them quite large then loads of heat floods in and you've got to get rid of it somehow so the the entrance apertures that we have are sort of on the order of 10 centimeters or less mm-hmm. which is quite small for for stuff that we've flown in the past nasa last year so two years ago uh we're in 2020 now right so <laughs> <laughs> so uh last two years ago nasa launched the parker solar probe now, Solar Orbiter will get down to 0.28 of the distance between the Sun and the Earth, so about a quarter of the distance between the Sun and the Earth. Parker Solar Probe gets in much, much, much closer, but so close that they can't afford to cut holes in the heat shield to let light in, because it would let in too much heat and just cook everything inside. So we, we've, it's, it's one of those kind of interesting examples of, of like innovation through competition. NASA's approach has been to get much, much mm. closer to the sun and yeah. measure things, in, as we say, in situ there. So you measure how the, the plasma feels at that point. Um, but the only camera they have is able to look off to the side and catch bits of the, the outer atmosphere of the sun. Whereas our approach has been to stand back a little bit and so that we can let telescopes work and see what it is that's generating the, the plasma that flows over us. Of course, the upside to all that is that we get to work together after a while. Well, that is fun. So we'll be able to compare the measurements we have in different yeah. places. That's really cool. In terms of how long it will take to, well, before, I guess, both teams are working together, how long is the Solar Orbiter mission expected to last for? And how long can the the probe actually survive, I guess. survive in yeah. those temperatures? So it's... it's Solar Orbiter has a, has a pretty tough life, actually. So we 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 started it off at the Earth, of course, where it launches. We fire it into, we, the we fire into the sun. <laughs> uh, sort of like we have to fire it past Venus a couple of times, then past Earth again, then past Venus. And we, we'll having launched it in February this year, um, we're coming up on the commissioning phase being finished. So hopefully everything is going to be tickety-boo. And then we can really take it over as, as a science mission. We'll have a cruise phase where it gets closer into the sun. We get it down to that sort of... 0.2, 8.3 distance um, to the sun. Uh, and then we'll go into a we call the nominal mission phase, which lasts from the end of 2021 till the end of 2025. And then we're hoping all things going well that we can carry on with the mission for another five years. Oh, and the, wow. the reason we do that is that we'll keep sending it past Venus. Because with Venus you can play a nice trick where you exchange some, sorry I'm going to be nerdy, but exchange some angular momentum, you can exchange some tilt of the orbit between Venus and Solar Orbiter. Mm -hmm. Venus won't feel a thing, but Solar Orbiter certainly will because it's much smaller. And in in doing what they call a gravity assist manoeuvre... It's like a slingshot. You can slingshot it like a slingshot from Star Trek IV. Oh, wow. (laughs) So you can sort of crank up, not go go back in time, you can crank up (laughs) the orbit so that it tilts more and more compared to the orbit of the other planets... And that lets us do something extremely cool for a whole bunch of reasons, which is to see the north and south poles of the sun, which we've never seen before. Oh, wow. So you're using Venus to actually tilt the orbiter. That's incredible. Yeah, Yeah. That is incredible. The thing that is completely shocking to me, and when when I think about it, it isn't, but when you say it, it's shocking that we've never seen the 
the north and south pole of the sun. No, it's it's sort of it's it hasn't been a priority until I guess maybe twenty years ago when we started talking about this mission as a concept, um, and there there are a whole there are two for me major things you can do when you do that. One is you just get to see the poles of the sun. Yeah. I mean, look what happened when we went to Jupiter and Saturn and looked at oh their God, poles. Yes, the, the hexagonal... The hexagonal yeah. waves on Saturn and they're just a beautiful marble, totally different um, colours that we saw on Jupiter, mm-hmm. which lets us see different parts of the, of the uh, different depths of the atmosphere and different, I guess, different compositions of the material there. That was just that was just beautiful, and uh, even on a, on a appreciation of nature level. But looking at it, we th- there are a lot of questions we have about how the gas on the inside of the star flows. Um, we know that it's not; it doesn't sort of rotate as a as a single solid body, so it doesn't rotate like a football. Mm-hmm. The equator spins, uh, makes a revolution quicker than the poles do, which means the equator starts racing ahead of the poles. It's not like it would be equivalent of sort of, um, I guess, Central Africa, you know, moving forward, moving east of us by ten degrees every every couple of days, as yeah. this, as the equator moves faster than than Europe does. And that has all sorts of weird um, potential effects, that, some of which we think we understand, that drive things like sunspots, for example, and solar flares and ejections of mass from, from the atmosphere of the sun. But there, there are crucial questions we can't answer by only looking from above the equator of the sun. If you can look higher up, you can try and match sound waves at the equator with sound waves that you see at the poles and see how deep... from from doing that matching, you can actually do a seismology of the sun. So in the same way, when you go looking for oil deposits or for coal, you can put like, oh, you know, you can smart. do an explosion over here and put, put microphones everywhere else and work out where the, the cavities are or mm. where the rocks have different... I absolutely adore astro seismology. It's like yeah, it's 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 almost too cool to be a, to be a scientist. Yeah, right? you're, um, you're pretty much using uh, sound waves uh, to work out what's the interior of not only the sun uh, we've been also used it on other stars yeah, right, and it's, Kepler, for example yeah, right? yeah. and it's uh, it's fantastic so super and, exciting and you can even do something which is to my mind almost ridiculous but once you've studied how it works it, it makes sense you can actually try and work out what the relative balance of the different chemical elements is. You can you can basically work out what's the flavour of the sun inside <laughs> from from looking at the, the relative balances of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, um, hydrogen, helium. Do I remember correctly that solar orbiter will measure up to a depth of over two hundred thousand kilometers from the surface? Yeah, which which brings you down into the into the into the realm of, of where we think it changes from a solid body rotator to a fluid body rotator, and where we think the the magnetic field is actually generated. So like a dynamo effect that you have. That is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 because we're we're constantly cranking that that's uh, that level of, of view. As as you get further and further away from the equator, you get to look deeper and deeper down. What's really cool about that is that in much the same way the gravitational waves lets us sort of sense what's happening way way out in in the. Um, in the universe, we can use sound waves to penetrate where light cannot penetrate on the sun. So we 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 can use the sort of the, the the bouncing around of sound waves in the interior of the sun, where in space you know famously you can't hear anything. But the effect that those sound waves have on the surface, we can then see with the telescopes and through a complex process of inversion, which is way beyond me. But very very good people <laughs> who are really excellent at this kind of stuff. You can work out where the speed of the sun where the speed of rotation of the star changes and if you plug that into your models you can tweak how much nitrogen there is or how much carbon there is uh, to work out where the where that crossover point should be and where you're right or where you're wrong and as weird as it is to say we actually don't definitively know how much helium there is in the sun 
<laughs> because because he is really really hard to measure. For all of you that uh, love a good, uh, well, that language pan, helium uh, uh, is uh, well, it's called helium because it was discovered in the sun. Right, exactly. Right, so, uh, so from Helios. So, so, so they so they oh. noticed that there was there was this this element that they didn't know what it was, and it's it's only the second element in the whole periodic table, right? It's like the second most important element in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Been there since. Uh, the big bang yeah, exactly so, yeah and, this, and the star keeps making more and more of it which of course complicates the picture because there should be more deeper down and higher up am i wrong in saying that helium is finite on earth that it's something that is running out yeah we we, we are currently not a, whatever helium we have we typically get from mine deposits right and we get forget from pockets of gas deep down within the planet and until we come up with nuclear fusion from hydrogen we won't be making any more helium so we are Ooh, wow. currently running out of helium I think I might be right in saying no. I don't remember which country it is that has the most, but yeah. But I would point out that every single element on Earth is finite. <laughs> Just to be pedantic, <laughs> you might have a lot of uranium in the core, but it doesn't mean that it's infinite amount. Okay, yeah. Okay, fair point. <laughs> but for sure, but for sure, we, we're, yeah, we're we're currently running out of it. Yes. <laughs> Sorry for the pedant moment. Uh, yeah. Chris will put a jingle of... Uh, <laughs> or something. Okay, the moral story is enjoy your balloons while you can. That's very, very cool. There uh, is one thing that I do want to know now, and I dread to kind of ask, because you've already made it sound so awesome, and I just get the feeling this is going to be another rover. Is Solo going to come home? Well, probably... We, certainly not. Because oh, the... the, okay. the I'm over it. The orbit that we do, <laughs> yeah. and we can't land it on the sun either. It's really not. <laughs> the orbit that we put it into uh, will eventually that so that that whizzing path to Venus that it does. Mm -hmm. I think we get in the end we go around the sun three times for every two Venus orbits. So we'll meet it every nth orbit. But after a while, Venus can't help anymore to change the inclination. So at the end of the ten-year sort of program that we have yep. uh, um, in our in our plans. We'll get to about 34 degrees inclination, and I think Venus can help get it maybe a little tiny fraction above that, but eventually it will just run out of fuel. And fuel is important because there it's not only sort of the Earth and Venus and the Sun and Jupiter way out there that control what happens to the spacecraft. There's micrometeorites, there's, also, there's radiation pressure from the Sun, there's all, all sorts of different forces acting on, on these things, which Lisa Pathfinder had to work really, really hard to fight against to stay in the same place all the time. Um, but eventually, if you run out of, of um, fuel for your thrusters, you start getting nudged about the solar system by different factors. And you, you can end up in a stable orbit or an unstable orbit. And we'll probably have, you know, we'll probably have track of the satellite for years after it stops working. But, I mean, as with all these things, it takes so much work to, to get them operating that we try and run them for as long as we possibly can, um, while they're in any way cost-effective. So will it be locked into just a constant orbit will it fall into the sun it, it almost certainly will not fall into the sun it'll be too far okay. out for that so okay. it would take it would take quite a big perturbation to get that to happen but we think it'll just keep wandering the the solar system wow. and doing fly past to venus and huh. so if uh, climate change uh, or antibiotic resistance hasn't killed us and you're listening to this from the year 2060 and you're trying to create an archaeological museum of space oh nice i like that yeah so the solar orbiter is out there 
about 50 million kilometers uh, from uh, the sun, more or less. More or less, yeah. Uh, that, at least that is the perigee, yeah, the um, per- perihelion. Perihelion, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the closest point to the sun. And at 34 degrees uh, on the plane of the solar system. Yeah. So get out there. Get, get out there every every three orbits of Venus for your, your tour of the uh, you, for your passage of, of solar yeah. orbiter past the planet. Bring it home. Yeah, bring it <laughs> home. Uh, yes, and also, even in 2060, please leave uh, a positive review about this episode. <laughs> For posterity. For posterity. Like, I, uh, and I see that the landing thing reminds me of something else, which is that we're lucky that we're going past Venus because should something happen and it end up sort of, you know, not flying past Venus but flying into Venus, mm. um, try not to make an expanse reference, of course, but but if, if, if it ends up crashing into Venus, we don't have to worry about planetary protection in the same way that we would do if it was going past Mars. So we don't have to have the same cleanliness requirements for biological contamination. Um, Interesting. The there are... There are Cleanliness requirements mm-hmm. to stop it from going blind to ultraviolet radiation, for example, and to not measure the wrong kind of particles in space. But we don't have to go the extra mile that you'd have to go for anything that goes to Mars. Because nothing survives on Venus, because <laughs> it's a hellish... Uh... Acid rain. Yeah, sulfuric acid, acid in the yeah. atmosphere. It's, yeah. Seriously. For me, it's one of the excited places that we should think about a base, but the base needs to be uh, floating <laughs> yeah, on the top of the clouds. A cl- yeah, a cloud yeah. city. But yeah. like with acid. Yeah. Don't touch the clouds. <laughs> Don't touch the clouds, no. Exactly. Don't go for like a stroll at night. Ooh, that that could be another interesting uh, thing for uh, a fictional episode uh, for the Astrolic yeah. Explained. But we'll bear that in mind. We'll bear that in mind. Okay. I think this is uh, all that we have time for today. Thank you very much, uh, This Dave. has been an absolute pleasure. Thank um, you so much. Likewise. It's lovely to talk to you guys about this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. We are very excited for the first uh, results from uh, uh, Solar Orbiter, so yeah. we can uh, bring you back here and then uh, you can tell us uh, all about it. Looking, yes. looking forward to it. We should have, we should have some, at least some, some sample images this year that we can, Fantastic. That's very, we can do very something cool. with you. Fantastic. Then I guess there may even be a chance of another episode in Season 2, in which we'll have a sequel episode to this episode. We'll just have to wait and see. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed is right. <laughs>